Welcome to the Connect Your Health to Life coaching podcast. I'm your host, Seth Lusk. I'm a master certified self-image coach and empowered health coach with a decade-long background working in the health and wellness industry. If you're anything like me or the clients that I work with, then you're probably struggling with body image, self-image, or confidence issues. You're probably also trying to figure out why it is that you have these amazing desires for living your healthiest and most fulfilling life, but you can't seem to create consistent actions in your life to reflect those desires. So join me as we dive in deep on what it means to live a fulfilled and authentic life. We're going to look from the perspective of an empowered mindset and uncover reasons why you might be what's holding yourself back from living your most fulfilling life. I'm going to break through some of the biggest illusions and myths that we've all been taught to believe along the way. And I'm so excited to have you with me on this journey. So my only question for you is, are you ready to start living your most authentic and fulfilling life once and for all? Then let's get started, shall we? Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. For those of you listening in for the first time, welcome, welcome. Yes, I'm going to say it again. You guys picked an interesting episode to listen in on for your first time. And for those of you listening in for your now 32nd time, yes, that means we are on episode number 32. I have put out now 32 episodes for you all. Guys, I'm, I'm, maybe this is not a huge deal to you all because I know there are podcasts out there with thousands of episodes on it, but I'm damn proud of myself for having stuck with this for 32 weeks so far. Um, we're getting closer and closer to me having done this every week for an entire year, um, and I'm hoping for years to come. So yeah, episode number 32, we're talking all about using pain or discomfort as our motivation to change and why people tend to use this as their motivation to change and how it doesn't serve us, how it's actually keeping us in this cycle of inaction and suffering and in the end, no real authentic changes that we're wanting to create. Um, So let's dive into this topic. And I think the best way to start off um, talking about this is kind of beginning to explain to you all what does using pain or discomfort as motivation even look like? Because most of the time when I have new clients come to me and I'm trying to, they're, they're talking to me about the things that they want to change in their life and how much of a struggle it's been. And they're very attached to their story about how it's impossible for them to change and why they can't change. And what I notice is when they tell me their stories of how they've tried to create change before, that they're using pain and discomfort as their motivation to change. And that is what ends up stopping them in the long run. And usually when I try and show them this in the beginning, they're very resistant to even seeing the fact that they're using pain or discomfort as their motivation to change. It's almost painful for them to see this cycle of abuse that they've been using on themselves to try and create change. And they've created usually some very um, creative and very... um, usually very elaborate ways to sort of hide from themselves that what they're using to try and motivate their change for themselves is really cruel and abusive. 
Um, and so I think a lot of people, when we start talking about this idea of not using pain or discomfort as your motivator to change, people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I don't do that. I'm making changes because I want blah, 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 blah. And they, they go on and talk and talk. And usually when I hear this story, it's like, but I can still hear the pain and discomfort in that story. And it takes a little while sometimes to get people to see this. So what I want to start off is, you know, kind of starting to explain to you guys how this can look in someone's life and the subtle ways in which this shows up that nowadays in the 21st century, they're so socially acceptable, so normal for us to to use these ways to try and motivate change that we don't even see them as being about pain and discomfort anymore. We just see it as, oh, this is this is just how you change. You, you obviously use guilt and shame, and that's just normal. It's not because I'm trying to create enough pain. It's just because that's how you create change. And what I want to offer is that that's a load of crap. <laughs> it is a load of crap. And I have talked to so many coaches that still believe in this model of using pain and discomfort, using shame and guilt as a motivator for change. And I understand why, because pain creates very rapid movement when we resist it. And so this looks like, oh, this person's changing. Look, look at how quickly they gave up this and this and this and this. And so it looks on the surface at the very beginning like this is positive. This person is doing things that they never did before, and they're doing it very, very fast. And and yes, this is true. When we use pain as a motivator, we will rapidly run in a direction that we think is going to take us away from the pain. And when we perceive that as being authentic and true change, you can see why we would believe that using pain as a motivator is a positive thing. But what I want to offer is that any time I've ever seen someone use this method of change, in the long run, it just recreates the same old habit with a different mask on it later, or the person ends up going back to the same habit without even a different mask. It's just the same old habit because it's familiar. So what I want to offer is that using this method to try and create change does not actually create authentic, long-lasting, and fulfilling change. And that authentic, long-lasting, and fulfilling change requires our patience. It requires our love and compassion for ourselves. It requires our ability to be able to sit in our discomfort and take the time to understand it first before we start using our genuine wants and desires to move forward into action of change. And that being in pain and wanting to change are two different things. They occur at the same time, but they are two different things. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. So what I see is that many people live in denial that they're using pain and their own verbal internal abuse of themselves to motivate their change. There's this social programming that we get from our parents and our teachers and friends and television and the internet, such as social media, and it's created this really, really powerful illusion around us. And it's almost enough to convince us to believe that we're not actually using pain and discomfort to motivate our change. It's enough to create these cleverly disguised messages that seem, they seem so innocent and they seem so appealing on the surface that we use then to try and sort of motivate our action to change. But what I want to offer is that we, if we dig just below the surface, the outer layer of this illusion, it becomes clear that what we are doing is actually trying to abuse ourselves into change. 
And that the reason why we're doing it is because that's what we've been taught our entire lives is the model for change. When I was in school, that's how teachers motivated change. They would, you know, use these subtle ways to shame a student into wanting to be like another student. Like, look at how Sally did this. See, Sally is a good student. Everyone should want to be more like Sally. If you're not like Sally, then obviously you're not a good student. And piling on the shame onto students to want to be like, oh, okay, so I shouldn't be myself. I should be like Sally so that I can get the acceptance, love, and connection that I want and the validation that I'm looking for that I don't know yet that I can give myself because <laughs> I'm too young to know that. But this teacher is telling me that what I have to do to be like that, I just have to be more like Sally. And so we learn this model at a very young age to use shame as our motivator to want to be something different than ourselves. And what I want to offer is that we can want to be ourselves and still create changes in our lives, in our behaviors, in ways where we love ourselves through the change, where we're there through the process, where we're there through the progress Not just focusing on the end result and focusing on the judgment of ourselves in the process of trying to get to that end result, only to realize that when we get to that result, we've changed the line on ourselves because we can't, we still haven't learned how to love ourselves yet. So even when we make the progress that we want to make, we don't know how to be appreciative of it because we'll just change the line and we'll change the standard by which we're allowed to to love ourselves because we still haven't learned to love ourselves. So let's get clear on some of the ways that I see people using pain and discomfort as a motivator to change so that maybe you can start seeing how you might be doing it. I think the easiest way to start to approach seeing this pattern is to look at it in a way that I see a lot of people in the 21st century wanting to change, and that's in their appearance. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying by approaching this way that we can't want to change or make changes to the way our body appears. What I am trying to say is that the motivation behind why we're wanting to change it makes all of the difference. So if I'm wanting to lose weight because I want to look like someone else that I think is more lovable because they're thinner than me, or if I'm wanting to put on muscle mass as a man because I think that this guy who has more muscle is somehow, he's more acceptable, he's more lovable, he's more able to be accepted and validated in life because of his muscle. If that is my motivation for wanting to put on the muscle, then I'm using pain, guilt, shame as my motivator. But if I want to do it only for me, Because I know having more muscle makes me able to do activities that I enjoy doing. So I love rock climbing because I'm not saying I actually love rock climbing. Actually, I'm scared to death of rock climbing. But just as an example, say I loved rock climbing and I wanted to build more muscle so that I can climb rocks better. Because when I climb rocks, I feel more connected to my body. I feel the movements. I feel, you know, at one with myself. I feel at peace. I feel motivated to be in my progress and see the things that I'm capable of doing for myself and for myself and only for myself. If that is my motivation to want to get bigger muscles, that's totally different than, oh, well, I need to get bigger muscles so that I can be acceptable because this guy over here looks like he has big muscles and it looks like more people like him and love him. So that's what I need to be like in order to be loved and liked. Do you see the difference in these two? And also with the losing weight. If I want to lose weight to look like someone else, 
that I'm doing it in resistance to myself. I'm doing it in resistance to who I am. I'm doing it in resistance to why it is that I'm at the current weight that I'm at and why I created this for myself. Whereas if I decide, you know what, when when I lose weight, I'm able to do more of the activities that I want to do in my life. I'm able to to feel better and feel more connected in my body versus hiding from it and resisting it and putting on this layer of weight as a protective mechanism to being in my body and feeling comfortable in my body. And so when I recognize that I want to lose weight for me, not because I think it's going to make me more lovable, but because I recognize that I put on this weight because of fear, because of something, an illusion that I bought into and that I don't want to believe that illusion anymore. And I want to feel good in my body. I want to feel connected to my body. I want to take care of my body now. That's a different reason to want to lose weight than, oh, well, when I get down to a size two, then people will love me and accept me. And then I'll be able to love and accept myself. Because you see, the way that I'm talking about changing, and if you want to lose weight, is to love yourself first. And that be your reason why you're wanting to lose weight. See, This is one of the biggest ways in which I see people using pain and discomfort to try and create shame and guilt to to create change. It's this guilt and shame by comparison. And, you know, a lot of the factors that play into this are social media. You know, we, we are constantly comparing ourselves to people's lives that we see on social media and not even recognizing that the the life that we're seeing on social media is some edited, filtered, snapshot version of their life. We're not even seeing the real them. And then thinking that somehow being like this person is going to make me more lovable and acceptable. Or it could be because of something that family, a family member or a friend that you think is more handsome or more pretty, that gets a lot more attention or appear because of their appearance. So you might think you need to appear more like them. Um, maybe it's a famous role model that get you think gets a lot of attention or praise because of their appearance. So we can start to believe that when we see this, that the way a person looks is what makes them worthy of attention, love, and connection. And then believe that we have to try and look a certain way in order to be worthy of the same amount of love, connection, and acceptance. So we can begin to use that as a way to look at ourselves in the mirror and compare ourselves to this person or people and try and use the shame and discomfort and disgust with ourselves at the fact that we don't look like this person to try and inflict enough pain on ourselves to want to create change. And I call this shame by comparison. (laughs) And this is what so many of us out there are using as our method to try and create changes in the way that our body looks, in in our weight. And a lot of people use this as their quote unquote, I want to be healthier way to create change. They, they go about their journey to health by using shame and guilt that they don't look like a certain person that they perceive as being healthy. We live in this world where people are constantly screaming things at each other in an attempt to create more shame. And we see this as so often that I think a lot of us are losing sight of the fact that this common practice, as common as it may be, is not a constructive way to create change. And we, we see it creating rapid, immediate changes in people, but not long-term changes in people. And we lose sight of that. We see someone screaming shameful things at a person, and then the other person accepting those shameful things about themselves, and then immediately doing something to try and change themselves, 
And so we see, okay, well, that worked for them, so that's what I need to do to myself in order to create change in me. But what we lose sight of is the fact that this change doesn't last. It doesn't last because it's in resistance to the person. It's in resistance to why they are where they are in their life and behaving the way that they are behaving. And so they never really find out why it is that they want to change anything because they don't want to change. They feel like they have to change because of shame and guilt. So the change never lasts. It's not authentic. It's not fulfilling. But we live in this life where we're so busy chasing worth from comparison and not seeing, not, not choosing to see our worth just as we are for being who we are, no matter what we look like, that we, we forget to see where our worth actually comes from. And we constantly chase this idea of handsome or sexy or pretty as being validators for being worthy and lovable. But we forget, because of this chase, that these terms are entirely subjective. And we forget that we can choose for ourselves what pretty and handsome is for ourselves and then have our backs on it and choose to believe that we are lovable and that we are beautiful just as we are. You see, the most beautiful model in the world is still not pretty to someone out there. (laughs) And if that model let the lack of this one person, or actually it's probably going to be many people, not thinking that they're pretty, if they allow that to determine to themselves their own prettiness... They'll never believe that they're pretty. No matter how many people actually think that they are pretty. And what we don't realize is that until we choose to believe that about ourselves, we choose to believe that about ourselves, then it doesn't matter how much external validation we get by comparison. We will never change how we see about how we see ourselves. We will constantly just be looking for someone else who we want to perceive as prettier than us or more handsome or more sexy or more thin or whatever validator we're looking for. And then we'll just use that as the new comparison for why we're not allowed to be happy with who we are because we're choosing to not learn how to love ourselves and how to use that as our motivation to be more of who we are and to create the changes that we actually want to create in our lives. Not the change by comparison. Not the change by shame of comparison. And I see this shame by comparison translate into so many other areas in life. So it's not just about appearance. It can change into the area of career. So someone else's career looks more successful because either, I don't know, more people praise them for having that job or they make more money. Their marriage, you know, people who aren't married think that people that are married are somehow more worthy than them or happier than them in life because they're married. Um, their house, you know, whose house is prettier, whose house is bigger, whose house is whatever, you know, maybe more economically, I don't know, friendly or something. And so because your house is, someone else's house is more economically friendly, you're not allowed to be happy with your house until you can afford a house that's just as economically friendly as theirs. I, you know, so many ways to compare there. People's family, you know, how many kids do you have? You know, um, what is your relationship like with your mom? Look at my relationship with my mom and, you know, this kind of comparison. Financial status, the appearance of someone's happiness in life. These are all ways in which I see us comparing ourselves to each other. And then using shame by comparison to try and motivate ourselves to change. But in the end, all we end up doing is creating this endless cycle of going after goals only to find that, 
when we get close to that goal, there's someone else who's doing it differently than us and then choosing to believe because we won't choose to love ourselves ahead of time that somehow this other person that's doing it differently is also doing it better than us and that therefore we should do it better or give up on trying. And then if we do reach the goal line, we just move the goal line because we compare the results of someone else to it that did it differently. So we just create this unattainable, ever-changing end goal line and then tell ourselves that we're allowed to love ourselves when we reach that goal line. So we just end up chasing and chasing and chasing after this goal line that only moves further ahead the closer we get to it. So any growth that we do make in the process, we don't allow ourselves to see it. We don't allow ourselves to acknowledge it. And then when it ends up getting to be too much of chasing after this ever-changing goal line, guess what we do? We decide to go back to that familiar old habit, which we were unhappy with. <laughs> but we go back to it because we it's, at least it's familiar. We know what to expect there. And there's not this constant chase of you're not good enough yet, you're not good enough yet, you're not good enough yet, while moving into unfamiliarity. So we go back to the old habit and we just say, you know what? No, I'll never be good enough. And somehow that resignation of saying, I ne- I'll never feel good enough, that feels familiar enough that we're willing to accept that about ourselves and to not love ourselves and just decide ahead of time, I'm not worthy of love, instead of seeing we are worthy of love. And that's why we can go after any goal we want to go after. So this brings me to another way in which I, com- I see people commonly using pain and discomfort to motivate change. And I call this the should street blues. (laughs) But in other words, what it is, is just using the word or the the energy of should as the reason for changing. And I know this, this sounds so innocent. We use it all the time. I should do this. I should be doing that. Well, I should want this. Anytime I hear someone come to me with a goal and I ask them, so why is it that we have this goal and I hear the word I should, I already know exactly the path that they're heading down. I know it. Like I've been down it. I've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds upon hundreds of people use this same motivator to change. And I know that what this, this, this path is full of is other people's internalized voices and opinions that this person has convinced themselves that they actually want now because they have no idea what they genuinely want because they haven't been able to choose to love themselves enough to accept and see what they truly want because they're too busy chasing after other people's opinions and other people's internalized voices to try and get acceptance and approval. And they've practiced these beliefs of these external standards of excellence, goodness, lovability, acceptableness from another person for so long that they've convinced themselves that all I need to do is fulfill this checklist of expectations and that then all of a sudden my life is going to be happy. Then all of a sudden I'm going to be able to love myself. Then all of a sudden I'll finally be worthy of being accepted by myself and feeling connected to other people. But what you don't see when you use this method is that you yourself are the one that is not allowing yourself to feel fulfilled, love, and connected, and accepted. And that you have to, you have to, you don't have to, but if you want to feel those things, you want to choose to feel them ahead of time. 
Not, not once you get to the change. Because if that is your motivator for change, then you'll never, ever reach the point where you've changed enough where you'll learn to accept and love yourself. Because that's not how love and acceptance works. Because if you have to change yourself to be worth the love and acceptance, then the love is conditional. And you will always be able to find conditions that you haven't reached yet that mean you're not worthy of giving yourself that love and acceptance yet. You will always be able to find another person's opinion that you should want to live up to to add to your checklist of expectations that you need to check off before you're finally allowed to say, okay, now I'm worthy of the love and acceptance that I'm not giving myself. Because you still believe that that love and acceptance has to come from someone else. After you've checked off the external checklist. So the issue here is that when we use should as the motivator for change, we are also resisting our genuine wants in life. And we're resisting why we want those things. And what we do instead is we end up telling ourselves that what, that someone else knows better what we should want out of life and what is good to, to want out of life. And so any changes that we make here, they're not authentic to our own values and goals in life. We're literally living someone else's values and goals. And then we wonder why we don't feel fulfilled with any progress that we make in that direction. And what I see is that people who struggle with this way of motivating themselves, that they, they prefer this method of motivating themselves, these are also people who struggle a lot with their people-pleasing nature. And they're constantly worrying about what other people might think about them. So no matter what progress they make, they will not let themselves see the progress, feel acknowledgement for the progress, feel proud of the progress, because they will just keep looking outside of them for another person that they fear might be judging them as not being good enough yet. And then they will make that person their new standard for how they have to change themselves before they'll be worthy of love. And this cycle repeats and continues and repeats and continues until the person can no longer stand their own judgment of themselves, their own inability to love themselves, and they just give up on trying to change. They think that they're not able to change because they don't see that they've already changed a million things about themselves, but all the things that they've changed have not been things that they wanted to change. So they're capable of change, but they're just not capable of being happy with the change. Because they think that the changes that they need to make need to come from other people, and that other people need to offer them the validation of those changes, and other people need to offer them the acceptance and the love that they want to feel in the end. So it ends up becoming this endless cycle. So that's one another way in which I see people using pain and discomfort as the way to try and motivate change. Another one, I call it morality mayhem. And my friends, this is going to be a tough one to discuss. It's going to be a hard pill to swallow because morality is one of these things that we debate as humans over and over again. And some people believe that we are these inevitably flawed, immoral creatures that are just where we have to resist ourselves constantly in order to be moral and upright. And these are the people that don't want to learn to love themselves. They don't want to because they don't think that it's possible to learn to love themselves. So they just want to constantly keep changing the moral scale to something that they have to keep achieving at a checklist and have to check off that checklist before they'll be allowed to love themselves. There's a whole group of people out there that believe this. 
But then there are the rest of us that, that we can kind of start to see that morality is not as concrete as, as we want to believe that it is. Morality is quite subjective. And a lot of us grew up with these morality compasses that made us believe that morality was a lot more concrete than it actually is. The predominant culture of religion in, in the world today, like there are so many religions out there. And a lot of people like the security of a religion. And the, uh, don't, get, don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't have religion. And I'm not trying to say that spirituality is a bad thing. I'm a very deeply spiritual person. But I, I feel like a lot of people lean on religion as a way to create more moral concreteness. And this is where morality gets to be dangerous and creates this morality mayhem that we use against ourselves to try and create change. The reality is, morality is deeply subjective. And no matter how close we can get to universally agreeing on certain points in our human standard of morality, morality is still subjective. And I want to be clear here, I'm not saying that morality shouldn't exist or that we shouldn't want to try and find ways in which we can work together with our standards of morality and live together in peace and coexistence and love and acceptance and security with our differing moral standards. But you see, there's a difference between wanting a morality standard to guide our behavior and believing that a socially accepted moral standard has to guide our behavior and that we cannot question it. So, for instance... When we talk about morality, one of the the sort of laws of human nature that I think we can all agree on, there are a few actually, and we'll talk about those here in a minute, but the one that I think most of us can agree on is that killing another person intentionally, we all want to believe is morally wrong. And I don't think that there's a problem with us seeing this, because When we believe that killing a person intentionally is morally wrong, what we're actually seeing is that when we take another person's life, we're taking away their ability to choose anything. And I think we can all see how this is problematic. We've now taken away this person's ability to have their own humanity and to discover the things that they were here to discover and to live the life they were here to live. And... I think we we can all agree on this. Murder is not something that we want to accept. It's not something that we want to keep happening. It does keep happening. And I would debate why it keeps happening. I don't think it's because we have evil people in the world. I think it's because we have a society that creates beliefs in people, that creates some very evil behaviors in people. But I don't think the people themselves are evil. And I think we need to address that as a society, but that's a totally different topic. So I think we can all pretty much agree that killing people with intention is wrong. Murder is not something we want to be doing. But then we get down to these sort of gray areas. What about abortion? What about war? In war, we kill people. And in abortion, you know, is it really, you know... Whose choice is it? When does the person actually become a person with a life in which it's killing a person? Or when is it that when the risk of giving birth is going to kill the mother? When is it her right to choose that I don't want to do this? When is it the mother's right to choose that I was never ready to be pregnant in the first place and I didn't choose to be pregnant 
say the person was raped, and they're not ready to be able to care for another human's life? And so is it responsible for the person to then bring this life into the world and not be able to care for it? Here's where the area gets a little bit gray. And here's where the rigidity in in having moral standards starts to become problematic and starts to break down. And I know that talking about this frustrates some people and it makes people angry. And this is why I think we really need to explore this some more as, as humans. We want to discuss this. We want to open this up and talk about it because of the fact that it's uncomfortable. Because of the fact that we are unclear as to what we want to think about these things and why. And so I think it's important that when, when we look at morality, that we remain open to the fact that morality is subjective. And that we all do not have to have the same exact moral standards to coexist in peace and happiness. If one person wants to believe that having abortion is okay, and another person wants to believe that having abortion is not okay, we can live in a world of coexistence with having these different moral standards. And it's only when one person's moral standard takes away the other person's right to have their moral standard that it starts to become problematic. You see, someone believing that abortion is okay and having an abortion doesn't stop the person from believing that abortion is wrong, from having the belief that abortion is wrong, and choosing for themselves that they will never have an abortion. But when we go to the opposite extreme and say, okay, this person believes that abortion is wrong, and therefore everyone has to believe that abortion is wrong, so abortion is wrong, we're not allowed to have abortions, well, guess what? We've now taken away the ability for these other people to have their moral standard of they don't believe that abortion is murder. So this is where morality kind of becomes this sticky area in which we want to believe that it's more concrete than it actually is. And what I want to say here is that I believe that there are some some laws of human nature which appear to be universal, that we all tend to live by, and I'm not suggesting that we do away with these. Things like, for instance, we can all agree that we don't think that it's right for people to steal, or to murder, or to lie. But then we get into these gray areas of, is it stealing... When, you know, one group of people, um, say the the elite 1% of the world, are hogging all of the money and other people are starving to death because they don't have access to money and so therefore they don't have access to good food. So is it stealing if this person just wants to live and takes food to be able to survive because they have no money for it? You see, this is, this is, again, where morality, if we look at it too concretely, we lose the fact that morality is subjective. And where I see this playing into morality being used as a way to produce change in ourselves that is by using pain and discomfort is when morality becomes this unquestioned belief that people think that they have to live by. And that they have to change themselves to follow this moral compass without any questions. And we run into this issue a lot in our growth as the human species today. We can see now how religion going unquestioned has led to violent and destructive behaviors in how people treat other people. We see how laws can be made that make other people's rights to live an equal life of opportunity 
we can see how these laws have, have taken away these people's rights to have that equal opportunity, and how they can be used in a way to manipulate the system to not allow certain groups of people that we deem to be less worthy as having less opportunities. But we keep overlooking why we keep repeating this pattern in humanity in different ways. And we keep overlooking the fact that when we use concrete morality as a way to create change in humanity, what we are doing is we're living in resistance to reality and the fact that morality is subjective. And we keep using guilt and shame in that resistance to be able to fully see ourselves and love ourselves. And therefore, we use it in resistance to fully be able to see other people and love other people. And therefore, we slowly deteriorate our ability to fully see and love everyone around us. So any changes that we make here end up being destructive and in resistance to reality, in resistance to other people having their humanity who may have grown up differently than us, who may see things a little bit differently than us because of how they grew up and how they perceive the world. And inevitably, these changes reach a boiling point of violence and resistance to reality that end up undoing the changes that we made in the end. One of the clearest ways that I see this example play out today is using morality as, as a compass for change that has created a very destructive pattern in our world is if we look at it in the, the homosexual community. I have seen so many homosexual men, women, non-binary people that live a life that is just a complete lie to their truth, simply to avoid the judgment that they think that they might have to face by speaking their truth and living it. I did it. I changed myself to try and fit this moral standard that I thought would help me achieve being loved and connected and accepted. And in the end, when I finally spoke my truth, I felt more disconnected. I felt more alienated than ever, which is part of why it is that I choose today to show up in this world and try and create as much connectedness, as much openness, as much acceptance as I can in the world today, as much compassion as I can in the world today, because I know what it feels like to feel this unloved, disconnected, and alienated life. And when I see these people in the homosexual community living these lives, these people end up becoming so angry, so dishonest, and so internally violent, or even externally violent in their life, because they are in such resistance to themselves. They are living a life that is so full of internal judgment that this judgment cannot help but seep out into every other area of their life and affect their ability to have meaningful relationships, or to, or to feel fulfilled with anything that they do in their life. This is just one way in which I see people using a moral standard to try and create change. Homosexual people trying to live as straight people because they feel like at least then people will love me. But then they don't feel loved because they're not even being themselves. So what other people love isn't even them and they recognize that. They recognize that they're living a lie where they're being so internally violent to themselves. And that violence does eventually turn outwards in many different ways. I'm not necessarily saying physical violence. It could be verbal violence, emotional violence. So many different ways that it comes out. But this also occurs in so many other subtle ways other than in the homosexual community. So for instance, I see women getting married and having children when they don't have the genuine desire to do it. 
but they feel morally obligated to change their wants and desires in life to accommodate this moral standard of somehow, if they have children, that they're a better woman, that they're somehow more morally acceptable because they decided to become a mother, and that somehow this makes them more lovable and acceptable by society. I see people taking jobs that they don't genuinely want because of this belief that it will somehow offer this them this acceptance and approval that is based on their job's perceived moral contribution to society. So like, for instance, becoming a doctor, becoming a priest, becoming, you know, um, a social worker, um, something like that, that they believe somehow makes them morally superior and that will gain them acceptance. And so they take these jobs, but it's not genuinely the job that they want. I have seen people use religion as a way to morally shame themselves into losing weight because they believe that somehow their weight gain is a sign of their immoral nature or their carnal desires. (laughs) And they try and lose weight by piling on the shame of, of seeing this. But you see, in the end, because this person never learned to love themselves and to see why it is that they put on the weight to begin with and that it wasn't because they're this immorally corrupt, you know, I don't know, evil person, because they don't choose to see that ahead of time, then it's only a matter of time before they can't resist themselves any longer. And they go back to their old habit, because at least that that's familiar to them. And they feel like, I guess I'll just never be a good person. I'll never be worthy of love. Because I can't be skinny. And so therefore, I guess I'm just a bad person. I'm a weak person. I'm a lazy person. Because I'm just immoral. That's my human nature is me being immoral, me being lazy, me being whatever it is that they're calling themselves. So the next way that I see people using discomfort and pain as their motivator for change is regret. So we've got the the morality issue, we've got the should issue, we've got the, the unhappy by comparison, the social comparison The next way I see people using pain and discomfort is using regret of the past. And you'll know that if you're using this as your motivator to change, because you'll catch yourself saying things to yourself like, I could have done better, or I should have done this instead, and then I would have gotten, you know, fill in the blank on whatever result it is that you think that you would have gotten if you had done things differently. So this is just two ways in which you can catch yourself, you know, using phrases that are a sign that you're using regret of the past as a way to create enough shame and discomfort in yourself to push yourself into changing something about yourself. And this is just another socially accepted way that we have been taught to use guilt or shame to motivate change in ourselves. But the thing is that if we really look at this, we know that it's illogical and that it's cruel. But it's become so socially accepted and normal that we we just do it and we don't question why it is that we're doing it and we don't question why we believe that it's okay to do this to ourselves. So we just keep taking this approach over and over again. But when we really look at it, we can see that when we say things like, I could have done better, and when we use that approach, what we're actually doing is we're using information that we have now to judge a past version of ourselves that did not have that same set of information. And then using the fact that the past version of ourselves did not make decisions that we would have made now based on the new set of information that we have only because we took the action that we took, we use that information 
to see ourselves as being lazy or stupid or unable to make any change or not lovable or not good enough or any other name that you or phrase that you may use to, to call yourself something to try and judge yourself harshly enough to create motivation to want to change. So we're basically using information that we only gained by taking the action that we're now judging. We're using information that we gain by taking that action to then judge ourselves for taking that action. Can you kind of see how this is a little bit cruel? And how it's, it's actually, it makes no logical sense, but we do it. We don't question it. And of course we do it because we think that somehow it's going to keep us from making decisions that later on we will regret. So for us, it's almost like we think it's, it's keeping us safe. But what we don't realize is that we're the ones that get to decide whether or not we regret it. We think that we're protecting ourselves from this external regret that happens to us. But what we don't realize is that we're the ones that choose to use regret. It's not something that happens to us. So this brings me to the next way that I see people using pain and discomfort to be their motivator to change, and that's future fears of regret. So this is another really popular method that I see people using to try and motivate change. And what they end up doing is they they create this imaginary vision of themselves in which they don't change something in their life as it is right now, and then imagine another version of themselves in the future future in which they will then look at the future version of themselves that did not change and then judge it with so much regret that they cannot dis- they, that they can't stand the discomfort of the idea of that judgment so they push themselves to change to avoid that future judgment that they're afraid that they're going to give themselves there are a couple issues with this, and I think some of you, when I say this out loud, you can hear the issues in it, but I'm going to point them out here. Number one is that we are the ones who choose to judge ourselves and to look at ourselves with regret. It is not a given standard that we have to live by. It's not something that happens to us. So when we use this way of producing change, we perpetuate this idea that our mind controls us and that regret is something that happens to us, not something that we, re- that we create for ourselves. So we then become a victim of regret instead of choosing to see our power and responsibility in creating it and then choosing ahead of time that I'm not going to use regret. We do not see regret as being a product of how we choose to see things and feel about things. And so therefore we allow our minds to use us and think that we're being forced, that we have to see things a certain way and and judge things as a certain way. And that we think that our mind has power over us versus it being a tool that we use. So another way in which this is problematic is that, again, we're playing into this idea that it's okay to use future information that we didn't have at the time that we took the action that we're now judging to judge the version of ourselves that took the action. It's cruel. It's really, really cruel that we use information that we didn't have when we took the action to judge ourselves for taking the action. So a third way in which I see this being problematic, and this actually ties in using past regret and future regret, as well as the model of shame by comparison, a way in which all of these kind of come together and are problematic, is that we're creating this ever-moving standard of excellence for ourselves that has to be achieved in order to not judge ourselves. So we tell ourselves we're not allowed to stop judging ourselves until we reach this standard of excellence. But then we won't choose to set that standard of excellence. 
we make it an ever-moving line so that we, we know for ourselves we will never get to it. So we basically set ourselves up to believe that we have to constantly be in judgment of ourselves and anything that we accomplish. And we set ourselves up to believe that we have to look for what we could have done better instead of seeing what we did great and then seeing that we can still learn to try things differently the next time when we want to try something new. Instead, we choose to see that we have to just constantly judge ourselves. And we believe that no matter what we do, we have to look for what we have to judge because somehow judging ourselves keeps us safe from that future regret or from the past regret or from the comparison, shame by comparison. We think that we're keeping ourselves safe from it because we keep thinking that it's something that happens to us instead of taking the time to see our power in creating that, that we're the ones doing that to ourselves. We set ourselves up with this model to never be happy with whatever we do or achieve because we refuse to decide ahead of time for ourselves that we are going to do our best and that after we do our best, we will again choose to see that we did our best and to love ourselves for that no matter what the outcome. And that that doesn't mean that we can't want to do things differently the next time. But that's something different. Because again, the only reason that we, we choose to see that we have to regret something that we did in order to create change in the future is because we believe that the only way to motivate change in ourselves is that we have to create pain and discomfort. But when we use the model of that we know we're going to do our best, and that after we do our best, we're still going to choose to see that we did our best, and that that doesn't mean that we can't look at us doing our best and see, okay, the next time I get this opportunity, I want, I want to try this instead. Because I love myself, and I'm willing to try this. I'm willing to try this instead and see what happens when I do this. See if I can create this when I try this. But instead, we live in this model of believing that in order to create change, we have to create pain for ourselves. So then we, we set ourselves up ahead of time to see that when we do anything, we just have to create more pain for ourselves and never be happy with what we do because that's how we keep creating change. But this model doesn't work. Because again, we create a standard of excellence for ourselves that we will never reach and that eventually we will get tired of reaching for because really what we're wanting is to finally feel loved and accepted. But we're, we're never willing to give that to ourselves, no matter how much we change. Because we still keep seeing the change as being what's going to make us eventually worthy of that love and acceptance instead of seeing, no, I can change because I'm already worthy. I'm already loved and accepted. And therefore, I can try whatever it is that I want to try doing. Because no matter what the outcome is, I'm still going to have my back on it. I'm still going to love myself, no matter what, because the end result wasn't what was going to make me more lovable in the first place. So then I'm not afraid to approach change. And you see, when the standard of excellence is compared to someone else, there's always another person out there who did it differently that we can then choose in the moment to think, oh, well, they did it better and move the standard of excellence accordingly and then be like, okay, so I'm still not worthy of love yet. Still not worthy of being accepted yet. 
When the line is the line of future regret, we will always find something else that we will have been able to achieve if we do not keep changing things about ourselves so that we can eventually be worthy of love. And say, well, I cannot be happy with anything that I did because I have not done this yet, and I will use this later to regret myself later, so therefore I'm not, I'm, I'm not able to love myself now because now I have to do this to be worthy of love. Otherwise I'm going to regret this. And when we use past regret as our, our motivation to change and our line of standard, we set ourselves up to, in this moment, never be happy with anything that we did because we keep telling ourselves that we have to constantly be in judgment of everything we did and that we have to use information that we gain from doing what we did to therefore not be allowed to feel happy about what we did because the information that we gain from doing what we did we have to use it to judge the version of ourselves that did the thing that we did to get this information. And why the person that did the thing was dumb for doing it, because now we see how we want to do it differently in the future. So we will just constantly use information that we gain to start this cycle of judgment and discontent over and over and over, and constantly create unhappiness with who we are. And constantly create this inability to love ourselves because we, we constantly believe, no, no, I'm not allowed to love myself yet. I'm not allowed to love myself yet because there's still regret there, which means I'm not good enough yet. The truth is, no matter what we do as humans, there will always be something else that we can do. But there is nothing else that we could have done. If we could have, then we would have. We keep translating our newly learned information as could have potential, but it's not that. The newly gained information is I can do things differently in the future potential, but we won't do that if we constantly use it as a way to judge our past selves. The information we gain from doing things is I can do things differently in the future if I want to potential. But we, ha we forget to recognize that I had to do what I did to learn this and to create the awareness that I can do things differently in the future if I want to. But what we keep doing is we keep changing can to could. And this becomes this deadly weapon of regret and judgment that makes change impossible in us. Because why would we change when we know we're just going to beat ourselves up in the future for any change that we make because we're just going to use regret? So why even bother trying? So we just end up going back to the old familiar habit that we wanted to change because at least we know what to expect from ourselves there, even if we want to change it, instead of the unfamili unfamiliarity of what's the new standard by which I'm going to judge myself in the future. What's the new way I'm going to regret myself and tell myself that I'm not worthy of love in the future? I'd rather go back to the old version because at least I know how to deal with that. And so we never create any real authentic changes that we want to create in our life. So these are a few of the most popular ways that I see people using pain and discomfort as a way to create motivation and change. And there are many, many more and so many different ways in which these translate into people's lives in different ways and combine with each other in different ways. But there is one universal way in which all of these methods and the thousands and millions of more methods that I, I couldn't mention today, otherwise we'd be here for forever trying to mention them all. There's one way in which these universally cannot help us produce fulfilling, authentic, lifelong changes. 
And that's this. Change requires for us to be uncomfortable. Change requires for us to be uncomfortable because we're going to be doing things that we've never done before. And that's unfamiliar, which feels uncomfortable. But you see, because you've been using discomfort and pain as your motivator to change, you've now programmed yourself to see discomfort and pain as being bad and something to get away from. And therefore, you need to avoid pain and discomfort. So guess what? Therefore, you also need to avoid actually changing anything. You see, when we use guilt, shame, fear, discomfort, pain, embarrassment, unhappiness as our motivation to change, we send a powerful message to ourselves. And that message is that the goal is to get away from discomfort. Because that is why we're trying to change and hurry up and get away from the pain that we're experiencing is because pain and discomfort is wrong. It's bad. We shouldn't be experiencing it. So we're trying to hurry up and get away from it. But you see, where real change occurs, not just at the temporary behavior level out of fear, is in changing our thoughts and beliefs about the world around us. And in order to do that, we have to be willing to explore new thoughts and beliefs. We have to be willing to explore the old thoughts and beliefs that are creating the pain and discomfort in us. We have to be willing to explore those and be with them in order to create real change, in order to understand why we chose those to begin with and why it is that we don't want to keep choosing them again. And my friends, this is not a comfortable process. It's not a secure feeling process. Sometimes it feels out of control because it's unfamiliar. So if you're constantly chasing control to get away from uh, from pain and discomfort, then you've taught yourself to literally resist changing. Because guess what? Change is uncomfortable. Change will involve pain. That's part of being a human. Whether you change or not, you will experience discomfort and pain. The difference is is that when we choose to change, we choose discomfort that grows us towards what it is that we want to change to. Versus becoming a victim of discomfort and pain because we don't see how we're creating it in our life now. We don't see how the pain and discomfort that we are creating for ourselves right now is keeping us where we are right now. And that that's the reason why we aren't creating any change. So if our goal is to avoid discomfort, then guess what? The moment that the discomfort of staying the same becomes less painful than the discomfort of continuing to try and grow through resistance and pain, through discomfort, then guess what? We go back. We go right back to the old habits, right back to the old patterns. Maybe that we put another mask on them to try and convince ourselves that we created some sort of change, even though we really didn't. And we never end up producing the authentic changes that we wanted to produce. We actually don't even know what the authentic changes were that we wanted to produce because we're so busy using pain, shame, guilt, and comparison that even the changes that we're trying to create aren't the ones that we want to create. We don't even understand the changes that we want to create because we won't take enough time to be with our pain and discomfort to understand where it's coming from. It's coming from the fact that you're not trying to change the things that you actually want to change. And instead, you're busy judging yourself 
based on a standard that's out there, based on a standard that you think other people have of you that you have to meet to be worthy of love and acceptance. But this isn't the only way in which using pain and discomfort as a motivator to change ends up harming us universally and creating suffering. Because you see, the thing is, here's the other point. Life is 50-50. 50%, I love it, it's great, I'm happy, joyous, amazing. And 50%, I don't like it, it sucks, I'm unhappy, I don't feel good, I feel scared. <laughs> and the truth is that we need both to be able to recognize the other. But the difference between people who create changes in their life and really grow in a genuine and authentic and fulfilling way is whether or not the person chooses the discomfort that serves them to move closer to the version of themselves that they know that they are. To changing the behaviors to show up in their life more as that person that they know that they are. The other choice is to become a victim of your life and to become a victim of the discomfort and pain and to see it as something that's happening to you all of the time versus something that you're creating over and over again in your life because you're resisting yourself and resisting seeing how you're creating your current reality. And I know some of you might be thinking, wait, wait, I, just, I thought you just said that we don't want to use discomfort as our motivator to change. And now you're telling me that in order to change, I have to be, or that I have to choose discomfort. And you're probably thinking, well, that's a contradiction. <laughs> and I can see this, this question has come up several times before. And I want, to offer you, I want to offer you this as some clarity here. The discomfort that I'm asking you to choose is the discomfort of doing things that are unfamiliar. The discomfort of trying new beliefs and thoughts and beginning to look at the world through a lens of those new thoughts and beliefs. And feeling the discomfort of that uncertainty. And choosing to show up anyways and explore these new things and discover new things and to love ourselves and to have our back through those that discovery process, that growth, that journey of learning who we are and what we're capable of when we show up in our life as that person unstoppably and having our back. There's a difference between that and using the same old beliefs to create pain to fuel the drive for change. See, in what I'm asking you to do, the drive to change comes from love, respect, admiration, acceptance of yourself, compassion for yourself. And instead, what I see people using is rejection of themselves, disrespecting themselves, not accepting themselves, not admiring themselves, and trying to use that as their motivator to change. That's what I'm saying here. It's not that when you truly change and grow that you will never experience pain or discomfort. That's not what I'm saying here. The goal is not to get away from the pain or discomfort. The goal is to stop using pain and discomfort as our motivator to change. When we use pain and discomfort as our motivator to change, we also create a belief pattern in ourselves that resists 50% of our life and resists our ability to become aware of it. And so therefore we become a victim of it instead of choosing to step into it and to become aware of it and to learn what it's there to teach us with confidence, acceptance, compassion, and love. And to do all of this with intention, with to be part of this intentional experience of co-creating with the universe or whatever your higher power is. We need that 50% of what we do not life, like in life to recognize the 50% of what we do. 
And in an aware and fulfilling and mindful and intentional life, we choose the 50% of what we do not like to serve us to create the 50% of what we do like in life that is in alignment with who we are and our genuine wants in life. Instead of seeing what we like as being something that we luck into or that happens to us if we're lucky enough or if someone gives it to us, we recognize we have the power to create that with intention and to choose the 50% that we don't like as being part of our journey in seeing the 50% of what we do like that we created. One last way in which using pain and discomfort as our motivator for change and how it doesn't serve us is that we're sending ourselves the message that our judgments about certain behaviors are actually about who we are. We create this idea that the weight that we want to lose, the eating habit that we want to change, that these are something that is flawed about who we are. And we lose sight of the fact that this is only a behavior, and the behaviors are merely a symptom of a belief. They are not who we are. But we keep perpetuating this idea And we keep trying to change the behavior at the behavior level by using pain and discomfort as the motivator to quickly get away from the behavior without understanding where the behavior is coming from and why. And this can only be discovered by exploring ourselves with acceptance, love, and compassion. Otherwise, we're simply setting ourselves up to continue the cycle of recreating the same behavior, maybe in another version, with another mask on, And we'll keep doing that until we take the the time to understand why we've created this in the first place. And if we use pain and discomfort as a sign to hurry up and change, then we will never take the time to learn who we actually are and love and accept that person, have compassion for that person, and to see how that person has created these behaviors because They were trying, trying to create this love, this acceptance, this safety for us that we all want because we refuse to give it to ourselves. And only then can we start to choose to give it to ourselves and then create the changes that we want to from that space of love and compassion. And I I want to, one last thing I want to be clear on here. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to say that when we are in pain that we cannot want to change something. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that when you are in pain and wanting to change, to see these as two separate things, you are in pain and you are wanting to change. The pain does not have to be the reason for the change or the motivating energy for the change. You want to change. You have been wanting to change. The reason you feel suffering right now from the pain is because you've been resisting making that change and trying to use pain as your motivator to change. And you keep ignoring why the pain is there and what it, what it is there to want to show you about yourselves and your beliefs and how you're choosing to see yourself in the world and how that's creating pain for you. You want to understand the pain about the current situation you've created in your life and what is hurting about it and why. Both of those things are very important to look at in order to produce real, authentic change. But using pain as the motivating energy... That means you're just going to try and hurry up and get away from the pain. And then you'll never look at the reason behind the pain and why you created the circumstances in your life right now that you're in pain about and why you feel in pain about them. You'll instead simply try and just quickly get rid of it as fast as possible. This awareness of why we are in pain and how we created it is 
so essential to creating real, authentic, and fulfilling change. Instead of creating this temporary, inauthentic, and resistive change that we've all become so familiar with and become so frustrated with because this is what makes us believe we're not capable of change. And it's because we, we keep using this broken model of pain and shame and guilt and disgust and discomfort as our motivator to change. And we instead want to look at that pain and that discomfort instead of judging it as being wrong and that it shouldn't be there. And when we can look at it instead of judging it, we can open ourselves up to compassion and understand ourselves deeper and accept and love ourselves deeper, which is really what we're craving. And in turn, show up in the world with that understanding and love and that compassion for those around us who are also struggling to grow and to change. We can show up in the world with that love and compassion for other people who are in pain and reacting to their pain and thinking that they also have to keep using their pain and discomfort as a motivator to change. We can show them that there's another way by doing it ourselves. You see, we don't want to get rid of pain. It's part of the human experience. It's how we experience the richness of life. If you can think of any meaningful relationship in your life, if you look back through the, the, the life of that relationship, it's full of both joy and pain. It's full of happiness and sadness. It's full of connectedness. It's full of yelling at each other and misunderstanding. It's full of communication and miscommunication. All of this was necessary to learn and cultivate that relationship. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone who's just really, really trying hard to be what they think that you want them to be in order for you to like them, to be in a relationship with them? Have you ever been in a relationship with someone like this? I have. And I know that you guys have too. And if you really think about it, you'll, you'll think of an example in your life where you've been in a relationship with someone like this. And those relationships, they tend to not last for very long. Unless, of course, it's a relationship like a work relationship where you have to work with a person. But if you have to work with a person, I'm sure you also notice that you keep your interactions with this person very limited. You may even avoid them. You don't feel close to this person. And that person is definitely not someone who you're going to go to when you're experiencing pain and you want someone to see you and understand you. Because you don't see and understand them because they're avoiding being seen and understood because they're trying to be this palatable version of themselves that they think that you will like in order for them to be closer to you. But you recognize that you can't be close to them because you don't know the real them because they're not letting you know the real them. And yet we do this with ourselves. We do this over and over again. Because we're constantly so busy trying to get rid of the pain instead of understanding that the pain is part of the depth of being a human. It's part of the deal of being here. And I know that's, that's a hard sell. Some of you guys don't want to buy into it. You're like, oh, come on, really? Do I have to experience pain? My friend, yes, it's part of being, it's part of being alive. And the sooner that you can accept that that's part of life, and that you have the power to choose with intention the discomfort and pain you're going to go through to become more of the person that you know you are on the inside and show up as that person. The sooner you can accept that, the sooner you can start creating real and authentic and fulfilling growth in your life. Not the growth that you think that you have to create because of some ever-changing standard out there <laughs> that you keep moving the line for. 
So the sooner that we can all realize that pain is part of the deal of being a human and that that's okay, the goal is not to get rid of pain, that's the sooner that that we can start creating real and authentic change. But also with recognizing that when we experience pain and we want to change, that those are two separate things. I am experiencing pain. What is this pain about? That's something to look at and is so important. And then, and then, what do I want to change and why do I want to change it for me? Because I am loved, because I'm awesome, because I am this beautiful person that is worthy of love and acceptance and connection and compassion. Because of that, because I want to show up in the world more as that person, what do I want to change for me? This is how we create real and authentic change in our lives, my friends. That's all I have for you all today. And I know this was a deep, deep topic to jump into. And I know that some of you are probably more confused now than when you started listening to this episode. That's okay. I hope you do feel more confused. Confusion is not bad. Confusion is a sign to lean into curiosity. What am I confused about? What am I really struggling with? Ask questions. If you're listening in on this episode and you feel confused about something that I said, ask me a question. Ask me. That's what I'm here for. I think a lot of you all think that when I offer these podcasts out that somehow this is coaching. But all I'm doing is offering you all some information. How it's going to apply to you is going to be very different than how it's going to apply to anyone else. And so if this information is confusing to you, then ask your question so that we can find how this information applies to you specifically and how you can use it to create action in your life, not just sit there with another set of information that you consumed that you'll do nothing with, create nothing with, because again, you're afraid of judging yourself in the future, or you're afraid of trying to create change because you don't want to go down that path of using pain and discomfort as your motivator for change because you know how it inevitably ends. Right back where you are right now, not loving yourself, not accepting yourself, not feeling good enough, not feeling connected, not feeling worthy. So ask your questions, my friends. I hope that this created some confusion. I hope that this created some curiosity. I hope this created some questions. I hope this opens up the conversation here, my friends, because... This is a tough sell. This is something that our society is very much against. And whenever I offer this to people, I, al- I, I almost always receive pushback on it. Because people are so afraid to let go of this model of using shame and guilt and pain as their motivator for change. Because they're afraid if they do, that they will never change the things about themselves that they want to change. And what I'm here to offer you is that that is a load of crap. And that there is a way to change that is driven by love and compassion and understanding. Not with judgment. Not with pain, guilt, and shame. All right? So if this hit home for you, if you recognize some of these tendencies, some of these patterns that I brought up in the the episode today, if you recognize these, reach out. I'm here to help you. I'm here to put you on the path to where you can start creating change from a space of love and compassion and support and having your back, feeling empowered to change, not feeling like you have to to be worthy enough. Okay? I love you all. Thank you for listening in this week. I look forward to talking to you all again next week. Ciao. 
Hey, thank you for listening in this week. I hope you enjoyed the content of this episode. If you did, please subscribe or follow this podcast to receive the newest episodes every week as I bring them to you here on the Connect Your Health to Life coaching channel. Ratings, reviews, and comments are always appreciated. These allow me to know more of what my listeners would like in the podcast and allow for more people who may be searching for a podcast just like this one to find the Connect Your Health to Life coaching channel. If you would like more information about me and the work that I do with my clients one-on-one, then please visit my website at www.slch.ch. Again, that is www.slch.ch. You can also find me on social media on Instagram at sethlusk underscore coaching. Again, that is sethlusk underscore coaching. And on Facebook in my free Facebook group community called A Healthy Life Connection. We would love to have you in the group, and it's only three membership questions that you have to answer to join. And again, it's entirely free. And if you need any further information or just want to say hello, feel free to send me an email directly at slusk.health at slch.ch. Again, that is slusk.health at slch.ch. Thank you again so much for listening, and I look forward to our next time together. Ciao.